my name has always felt a little bit fraudulent. Not the Moyer part, my surname, Lothian MacLean. It's maybe the most Scottish second name someone could have, which feels somewhat wrong given it took me 25 years to trek north of the border for the first time, and none of my immediate family have even a hint of a brogue. This Scottish name isn't just from one parent either. The Lothian comes from my Jamaican father, first name Leonard, an extremely popular name with Jamaican men of a certain age. And the Maclean is from my mum, courtesy of a Glaswegian great-grandfather, which means on both sides I'm seeped in Scottish heritage that tells a fascinating story about migration and empire. If I search the geographic prevalence of my dad's surname, Lothian, the top four results are unsurprising. The highest concentration of people with the name Lothian can be found in majority white Western countries, Scotland, England, the US, Australia, Canada. But then we come to Jamaica, the odd one out. When we talk about the British Empire and the British slave trade, it's easy to forget that England, although the central seat of power, was not the only country involved. And for the next three episodes, we're going to turn our attention to one of the nations that has all too often escaped the full scrutiny of its role in the wider system of slavery. Bonnie Scotland itself. In this first instalment, I want to lay our scene and understand the political and cultural landscape of Scotland when the 1707 Acts of Union saw it become part of Great Britain. I need to understand how Scotland embraced slavery in the first place before we can dive into the details of how that played out across the globe. Were Scottish people already active in the expanding British Empire, even before they were officially part of it? You had Scots, Irish people, English people, they were already active in the empire. They were active in the Caribbean. Not all of them were legally allowed to be there, but they were certainly participating as much as they could. So colonization, of course, is a term that we are applying right now to a process of change that happened over centuries. But the big change in the late 17th, 18th centuries was money. So Scotland was almost bankrupt by the end of the 17th century. And the Union of 1707 was kind of a way to atone for what had happened to Scotland was something called the Darien Scheme, where Scotland lost a significant proportion of its cash. And you had the landed gentry who were pretty frustrated with that. And the Union allowed them access to the empire. So this was stuff that was already happening. But what it did was it kind of normalized it. It normalized their access to the empire, normalized their access to the money that could be made. And that was the difference with Ireland, for example, because Ireland didn't get that same level of access until 1800, 1801 with its parliamentary union. Carly Keogh is the Canada Research Chair in Atlantic Canada Communities at St. Mary's University in Halifax in, yes, you guessed it, Canada. I look at the relationship between the Scottish Highlanders and the Empire, particularly my part of the world in Atlantic Canada, but also the links that they had with the Caribbean, various islands in the Caribbean. What's going on domestically in Scotland at this time? If I was a Scottish person living in the Highlands in 1707, what would the world around me look like? You have a really serious 
shift that's happening in society where there's this tension between old and what is deemed modernism and, and moving into a more progressive economy. And there is a lot of pressure on Gaelic speakers, for example. There's a lot of pressure on small communities, on the older style of land usage, and a desire to move old Highland society into a different kind of land occupation where it is owned, it is rented, and people who use the land have to pay either in cash or in kind money to the landowners. And you have this really serious shift in culture as well, which is a shift from allegiance to a chief, a clan's allegiance to a chief. And those chiefs sort of change into the landed gentry, the landowners, the elites. And there's a breakdown between the people and the chiefs. And that is what's going on before the clearances start. When Carly references the clearances, she means the Highland clearances, which saw thousands of Scottish tenants forcibly evicted from land in the Scottish Highlands over a period that lasted more than 50 years, from the mid-18th century onwards. Many of us would have heard about the Highland clearances as a concept and historical event, but I wanted to know more about what those clearances looked like on the ground. After the Jacobite Rebellion in 1745-46, when there's significant legislation that's put in place to restrict Highland ways of life, to undermine their ability to come together, to have weapons, to speak their language, to wear tartan, all of these things, it was death by a thousand cuts in many ways. And the first phase of the clearances was really when you have those people who are able to make a decision to leave they start to do that. And many of them are taxmen. So they would have been people that were kind of upper middle level. They were in charge of land and distributing it. And the landowners actually wanted to take back that control over the land and get the full income from that. And this taxman group was kind of squeezed out. And they were very progressive. They were entrepreneurial. Some of them were, you know, they would have been economic failures had it not been for patronage and family connections. But they start to leave and they start to take people with them and it's sort of like the period you jump before you're pushed and then in the early 18th century sort of 1810s 1820s that's when you get a lot of people that are forcibly removed from traditional landscapes so places that they and their ancestors had occupied as long as anybody could remember they get pushed off of that because they either can't pay their rent or they're not as profitable as sheep and then that kind of continues in the 1830s, 40s and 50s, where there is just this really significant change in the Highland economy. And it is about making as much money off of land as possible. And people become expendable in a way. And that's how they come to my side <laughs> of the ocean. The Jacobite Revolution was an attempt to get back James II's throne. In episode one, we discussed James II and his deposition during the Glorious Revolution. In short, Jacobite Risings were an attempt to place James and his Stuart descendants back on the United Scottish and English throne. The movement was eventually snuffed out after the decisive defeat of Charles Edward Stuart, James II's grandson, known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. But back to the Highlands. What's behind these clearances? Is it the union to create Great Britain? Internal politics? Religion? 
It's a lot of different things that are influencing this. The Union of the Crowns, which happened in 1603, it brings the crowns of Scotland together with England, Ireland and Wales under the one person of James VI and I. And that really starts a lot of these changes. And so it's a change of the four nations and it's a lot of different things that are happening. So in addition to the Union of the Crowns, you have in the 17th century, a lot of social change that's happening, but there's religious tension as Presbyterianism started to embed and replace Catholicism really significantly. Then in the early 18th century, you have the Union of Parliaments, and that is when Scotland joins England and Wales in parliamentary union. That is a big deal in Scotland. It ushers in a period of really profound change, I think, for Scotland, because it gives them unfettered access to the empire. Previous to that, it had been England's empire. But after the Union of 1707, it's Britain's empire and Scots really grab hold of that and start to make their mark. That changes everything. That is what characterizes the 18th century and ushers in this period of economic change, of modernization, of people feeling that their life, their language, their culture just doesn't fit anymore. And that brings in the clearances. It's an attack on the Highland way of life. It's an attack on the Gaels. There was no one Scottish people at this time. So one thing to just bear in mind is there was an attack on the Highlanders because they were seen as out of sync with the rest of Britain. They were seen as holding Britain back in a way similar to the Irish are often characterized as behind, problematic, and I'm using quotes here, uncivilized. They weren't moving in, in a direction at the same pace as what was preferred, particularly by Lowland Scots. So there's a lot of tension between Highland and Lowland Scotland at this time. So we need to be careful about how we see Scotland. There was no one Scottish people. They were a number of people from different regions. They spoke different languages. They had different allegiances. So that was a big challenge. And also people in the highlands themselves who wanted change and were pushing for it. So there is this perception that all of the change that happened in the 18th century came from England. And that's not the case. It was people who were invested in the British project, in the British imperial program. Scots were as invested as other people from the Four Nations. When Carly says that people were removed in the highland clearances, what does that actually mean? And how did that play out? Well, in the first phase of the clearances, they just leave. They just decide to go. It's not an easy decision to emigrate. I actually emigrated to the UK. It was a really difficult decision to do that because you're breaking a relationship with your home. And so when they made that decision to go, it was difficult, but they didn't see a future for themselves there. And they thought that there was land available in other places. There were more economic opportunities, so they wanted to take that. So it was, it was a proactive decision. In other cases later on in the clearances, you do get some examples of people being actively physically removed from their homes, taken out of their homes, the roofs off their homes burned. These are in some of the extreme examples. The Sutherland clearances are notorious, for example, that continue to be notorious to today. The Sutherland clearances have become a flashpoint of the Highland clearances and, despite being atypical of them in some ways, have come to symbolise the clearances as a whole. Around 15,000 people were systemically cleared from the Countess of Sutherland's estate between 1809 and 1821 to make way for large-scale sheep farming. The clearances stood out for their violence, with houses razed to the ground and possessions destroyed. 
People even reportedly died thanks to being so suddenly evicted from shelter. You get people who were kind of bullied off the land, so the rents were raised to such an extent that they couldn't afford to live there. They get people kind of constantly coming after them saying, you have to do this or you have to do that. In some cases, you had on Presbyterian land, if there was a Presbyterian landowner, for example, sometimes they would try to force all of their tenants to convert, if they were Catholics, to convert to Presbyterianism. You know, there were a lot of different coercive methods that were used to encourage people to find somewhere else to go. And you have a lot of people that migrate south, for example, to Glasgow. A lot go to Dundee, but loads go to Glasgow. and They'll go further afield because there's really nothing for them anymore in the place that they were born and raised. By further afield, we mean other sites within the British Empire, like Canadian settlements in the Caribbean. Right. They're going over in the 18th century, but to my side, to what would become Atlantic Canada or the Maritime Provinces, the first kind of group starts to come over in the early 1770s. And from then, it's just wave after wave of people. You have, I would say, the more affluent and mixed groups that come over before the turn of the 19th century. And then after that, particularly in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, you get people who are of much more limited economic means and they also start coming over to Nova Scotia, to Prince Edward Island, to Cape Breton. Cape Breton was actually its own colony between 1783 and 1820. But these are all places that had land, right? It didn't actually have land. The land was already occupied by our Indigenous peoples. But to British colonizer, to a Highlander, there was land for the taking. And it was a place that they could go where they felt that they weren't going to be at risk of being removed, where they weren't going to be controlled by a landlord, where they were going to be able to create their own futures and kind of live in relative peace. Does that relative peace extend to the Indigenous Canadian people already living on the land the Highlanders wanted to occupy? Where I'm from, they are the Mi'kmaq. And the relationship initially, like the Mi'kmaq are a peaceful people and they are supportive and they were migratory people. So they used all the land at different times of the year. The Highlanders were not used to that. They were not used to having to necessarily work around a migratory Indigenous people. And they were extremely land hungry and they became very aggressive very quickly, which meant that even if there were some relationships that were good and relatively friendly and supportive, and everybody over here will always say, well, there's these stories about everybody helping each other. And it's like, yeah, that's fine, except for the fact that the Highlanders wanted land and they didn't want the Mi'kmaq on the land. And so they did everything they could to make sure that they could get clear title to land through the colonial administrators. What about the Caribbean? How does the Scottish presence in British slaving colonies make itself known? The Scots were involved from a very early point as well. The Scots actually, I think, were the majority in Jamaica, for example. What my research has shown, I focused more on the ceded colonies, so the ones that came after the Seven Years' War, which ended with the Treaty of Paris in 1763. And that opens up a lot of opportunities for Highlanders who maybe couldn't get access to the colonies, like Barbados, 
even or Jamaica, for example, that were already well underway with their plantation processes and their economies. And so they got opportunities, and I say opportunities loosely, this is how they saw it. They got opportunities in islands that hadn't really been exploited yet. So you have a lot in Trinidad and Grenada, in places like this, where they found a niche for themselves. And they moved over there in really significant numbers. Also, the British government, of which they were part, needed people to populate these islands. They needed loyal people to populate these islands. They needed people to develop new economies, all based on enslaved people. But they needed also for military defense. You have to remember Britain is still going to be at war with France at different periods until 1815. And so some of these colonies had majority French populations. And so you want people from the four nations there. For the record, the Scottish presence in Jamaica was hugely disproportionate to the size of their home nation. By 1817, Scottish planters owned 32% of the slaves in Jamaica, which roughly equates to nearly 30,000 people. It's fascinating to trace how Scottish people, pushed out of their own land and subjugated, are able to suddenly seize power, land and the ownership of people when placed in the context of slaving colonies just because of their status as citizens of empire. There's a myth that still rears its head that suggests because the Scots were victims of colonisation themselves, they would be more lenient and empathetic to enslaved populations. I asked Carly if there's any truth in this. Uh, yeah, that's a myth. <laughs> it's a complete myth. The Highlanders, for example, they were no different in their activities on any of these islands than lowland Scots, than English people. They were very aggressive planters. And yes, one of the roles that many of them took on was to open and run plantations. So they were planters. They were people that just worked on plantations. They were lawyers. They were medics. They were doctors. In fact, there were an awful lot of Scottish doctors who went over. They were ministers. So you actually also get a huge investment from Scotland's universities in the Caribbean because it's educating the kind of middle tier that was going to take care of the business of the plantations. So you have big landowners who are buying and creating plantations, but then you have this middle tier that is going over there to run them and to make them profitable. So the Scots are invested in every level of the plantation economy, of the colonial economy in the Caribbean. They're occupying every job. There are indentured servants as well. There are people who are tradespeople. You find a lot of letters in libraries and archives where relatives are asking for placements for their sons. Can they go over and join you? Can they go help you? Can they learn bookkeeping, for example, to work in your Glasgow office? So they are at all levels of this economy. They were as complicit and as aggressive as anyone else. As we've learned throughout the course of human resources, following the financial trails that have been left can help us fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge. Where were the Scots involved in slaving putting their money? The money is going back home. There's a lot of remittances that are going back. So you have from as kind of humble a level as, you know, sons sending money home to help their parents pay for the rents, the increasing rents. But you also have a lot of charitable enterprise that's evolving and developing in the late 18th and early 19th century. So for example, academies, asylums, hospitals. I've written on some academies in the Highlands of Scotland, also the asylum and the Royal Infirmary in Inverness. When those 
institutions were getting off the ground, you had Highlanders reaching out to other Highlanders through networks in the Caribbean saying, would you make a subscription to help us get this up and running? So you have people donating small amounts of money or big amounts of money. And so they're sending this all home so that they can develop this infrastructure, this charitable enterprise that's going to support people in need. But also when you think about the academies, those academies are really developed to provide, it wasn't really the middle class at that time, but the middle tier with usable education that they could then apply in the empire. So for example, you have engineering, you have spherical navigation, you have mathematics, you have bookkeeping, you have all of these different skills that are being taught in academies. They're not necessarily just training people to stay in Scotland, but a lot of the money that was required to get these schools up and running came from the empire. So I think there's an estimate that about 25%, for example, of the money that was required to get Inverness Royal Academy up and running came from the Caribbean. So it's major investment coming home. Some links are documented and acknowledged. In 2021, NHS Lothian and the Edinburgh and Lothian's Health Foundation confirmed that the present-day organisations are ones descended from donations and endowments linked to the slave trade. In a statement, NHS Lothian referred to slavery as central to the national economy throughout the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries and said they were committed to addressing this legacy of colonialism, racism and slavery and using this learning to help remove inequality and shape a positive future for all. But I'm also interested in those patterns we see of individuals sending money home to help out struggling families. Their migration journeys are not dissimilar to those we can see today especially from low-income countries that have suffered as a result of British colonialism, which have high migration rates to the UK in search of a promised land paved with gold, which does not really exist. But when the Scottish went to the likes of the Caribbean and became key cogs in the slave trade, they immediately reproduced the patterns of harm that had pushed them there in the first place, but on an even more inhumane level. I asked Carly what she thought these observable themes tell us about the business and human cost of empire. I think at a human level, it tells us a lot about vulnerability, economic vulnerability, about human vulnerability, and people sometimes feeling that they don't have any other options. But then on the flip side, people who feel that this is their chance to strike it rich. It's a very complicated relationship, just as our society is so complex with everybody has different motivations for doing what they do. It was the same thing in the 18th and 19th century. When people are are in difficult situations, they're going to do what they need to do for their families. They're going to do what they need to do to survive. You know, we can look at it through the lens of somebody living in 2021. And it's easy for us to see that this is wrong and it absolutely is wrong. And, you know, I'm dealing with the legacies as a Canadian living in Nova Scotia, the legacies of colonization, trying to understand what my role can be in reconciliation with our Indigenous peoples. That is my responsibility right now. But it comes from way back when, when people didn't really know what other options they had. Now, the problem is if people try to pretend that these things are in the past and they need to be left there, because that means that we haven't actually opened our eyes to the damage that this has done to those who do not live with the privilege that I, as a white Canadian, live with. So I think that 
there's a lot to be learned by historical exploration. And some of it is quite humbling because you also, you do have to recognize at a fundamental level, people are vulnerable and they don't always make the right decisions, but at the time they thought they were. And then others are just into exploitation for as much money as they can possibly get. What is the cultural legacy of Scottish enslavement? There's a really significant cultural legacy in my part of the world, in the Maritimes. Gaelic is one of those legacies. It's the majority of the Highlanders who came over in the late 18th, early to mid 19th centuries. They were Gaelic speakers and that language sustained communities and it sustained families. And a legacy of that beyond the language is the folk culture, the folk traditions, the storytelling, the lullabies, the songs, the music is a big thing. Tartans can be, uh, they're more of like an invented tradition where it's something that's just, people like to hold on to something tangible and they like to put it up on their walls. And so they'll They'll say, oh, what's your family tartan? And then, you know, there's this huge, huge industry in that. But I would say the intangible culture is the stuff that's more real, which is the stories that the families tell, the names that they have, how they name their children, the names of the communities. Now, when you look in the Caribbean down in the South, you have the same things. You have names. Like, I think McDonald is the most common name in Jamaica, for example. But what was interesting, you know, when I lived in Scotland, they had the year of homecoming. And I think it was 2009. I might be wrong on that. But what they were doing was they were focusing on the white settler colonies, effectively. So New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the United States. They did not look to the Caribbean as part of their diaspora. They did not look to the Caribbean as part of their people. And yet they are. And that is, in fact, racist. There's no other way to describe it. And that's where you have to hold a mirror up and say, what have we missed? And oh, my God, what is our responsibility now? That's such a fascinating point. Do we think of the Caribbean as part of the Scottish diaspora? I'm sure some people do, perhaps who live there, but it's not a view I've come across much in Britain. What else do you think we've missed in how we remember this history? Where do we go to correct this? A lot. We've missed huge voices that just, they weren't in mainstream, they weren't mainstream research, they weren't glamorous. For example, there's an awful lot of money that goes to Scotland through the Canadian and American diaspora, right? Like you have a lot of Scots descended people in these two countries who are hugely invested in Scotland. And so there are these existing relationships. Um, You see it at universities, you see it all over the place. With the Caribbean, you don't really see that yet. And it's almost like there hasn't been space that's been made for these other people that are part of the story as well. And there is a lot more movement, I must say. The last, you know, eight, 10 years, there's been a lot more openness to researching the kind of breadth of Scottish connections, but we're still not there yet. And I think we need to do much more in terms of creating education partnerships and research partnerships and making space for those voices that aren't at the table. And we're dealing with that here in Canada with, in my area, the Mi'kmaq. And what is their view of everything? Because so far, I've heard a lot about what I might say as a white researcher, but what in terms of the effect this has all had on the Mi'kmaq, what's their story? So we've missed most (laughs) of it, actually. And how can we start filling these gaps? I think research is a first step, but research in non-traditional areas. So I can go into an archive or a library and I can look at documents 
but I can't, for example, read Gaelic. I can't read or speak Mi'kmaq. I don't have any connection to traditional knowledge systems or indigenous knowledge systems. So where is the space for colleagues and people from those traditions who can feed into the process? That is how you start to decolonize the story. You acknowledge that you have to, first of all, and then you start thinking, how does it look to those on the outside? What does it feel like to those on the outside? And I can't know that. I have to ask and be willing to hear things that are going to make me uncomfortable. Conversing with Carly has given me a grounding in the tectonic plates of power that sent thousands of Scots overseas and transformed them from subjects of oppression to enactors of it. Now I want to go further into these stories, to dig up the individual histories that show how the lives of the enslaved and white Scottish colonists collided and what happened to the human products of such unions. If you enjoyed this show, you may like other podcasts by the team. Just type Broccoli Productions in your favourite podcast app to discover more. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian-McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumba. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Lex Ademora. Social assets by Forward Slash. This is a Broccoli Production.